Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Psalm 106, verses 1 to 11 and 48. Please follow along with me as I read. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his loyal love endures. Who can adequately recount the Lord's mighty acts or relate all his praiseworthy deeds? How blessed are those who promote justice and do what is right all the time. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Pay attention to me when you deliver, so I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones. Rejoice along with your nation and boast along with the people who belong to you. We have sinned like our ancestors. We have done wrong. We have done evil. Our ancestors in Egypt failed to appreciate your miraculous deeds. They failed to remember your many acts of loyal love, and they rebelled at the sea by the Red Sea. Yet he delivered them for the sake of his reputation, that he might reveal his power. He shouted at the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the deep water as if it were a desert. He delivered them from the power of the one who hated them and rescued them from the power of the enemy. The water covered their enemies. Not even one of them survived. The Lord God of Israel deserves praise in the future and forevermore. Let all the people say, we agree. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and indeed, you are the glorious one. <laughs> you are the one that parts red seas. You are the one who rolls back stones and has tombs that are empty. And you're the one who delivers the Israelites from slavery, and you're the one who delivers people from enslavement to sin. And we thank you. <clears throat> Father, for some, this has been a difficult week. There's much going on for others. There's these events even this afternoon. I pray that we can set aside all of these things and look to your text and allow your word to speak in a mighty way as it promises it will. And we just thank you. Guide us as we go to the text. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to Exodus chapter 14, we've been moving through this book nestled in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, it's the second book. As you do, <clears throat> it was the drive home from Sunday school and church and Johnny's mom asked him, well, what did you learn in Sunday school th this morning? And Johnny said, eh, nothing much. And Mama knew because she was informed from the teacher what they had studied, so she was a little taken back. She said, well, didn't you study the parting of the Red Sea and how the Israelites went through? He goes, yeah, yeah. She goes, well, you don't sound very excited. He goes, well, you know, uh, there was this smog and they hit the night and Moses got some engineers together. They built the pontoon bridge, got the Israelites across and the, the, the smog lifted. The Egyptians brought in their tanks and then, then Moses called in an airstrike and took them out, and that was it. And Johnny's mom goes, well, I'm not sure that's how it was taught. He goes, no, but 
I'm telling you, Mom, if I had told you how she told it, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> That's Exodus 14. Exodus 14, let's go to the text. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses. I mean, this event is mentioned explicitly 125 times in the Old Testament, chapter 14 of Exodus. It's one of, if, if not the, one of the most, the most significant text in all of the Old Testament. Why? It marks Israel as a nation. It, it, it's, it's a, a watershed moment that the Israelites will come back to time and time again. You saw or heard from Psalm 106 that, that goes even back to this text. But God's deliverance of the Israelites, don't miss this as we move along, is even foreshadowed later as a future exodus and the salvation that Jesus Christ brought for us. Paul will highlight that and we'll look at that text later in 1 Corinthians 10. But it says, the Lord spoke to Moses. You want an interesting study this afternoon? Go back and look at how many times the Lord spoke to Moses since the burning bush in this whole process. Tell the Israelites that they may turn and camp before Pehetharoth, Migdal, and the opposite Baal Safan. We don't know where these sites are. Uh, there's archaeologists have quibbled and discussed it. We're not quite sure, but it's you're to camp by the sea. Now, you want to watch that phrase because it's going to be repeated several times in chapter 14. And Pharaoh will think that the Israelites are wandering around confused in the land. The desert has closed in on them. And I, watch the pronouns, will harden the heart of Pharaoh and he will chase after them. And I will be honored because of Pharaoh and because of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord so that it is what they, they will do. And it, it was reported to the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants were turned against the people. So he said, what in the world have we done? For we have released the people of Israel from serving us then he surprised, or excuse me, he uh, prepared his chariots. He took his army with him, and he took a hundred of the best chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt, and the officers on all of them. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Remember, we looked at this. We looked at the plagues. First five plagues, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. At that point, the Lord says, fine. I will now harden your hearts. And we see that reinforced here. And he chased the Israelites. Now, the Israelites were going defiantly. Literally, that term means arrogantly. They thought they had it all together. And the Egyptians chased after them, and all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh and the horsemen and his army overtook them, camping by the sea. And when Pharaoh got closer, the Israelites looked up and saw that the Egyptians were marching after them, and they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. Let's look at this first scene part here in chapter 14. We mentioned this last week. There are three paths to Canaan, the promised land from Egypt. The most obvious is along the, the, the sea, the Via Maris. They don't take that route. As we mentioned, there's fortifications, Egyptian fortifications. That's a military zone. You wouldn't dare take your group through there. The most obvious one, I think, option would have been the middle route, which they don't take either. They take the southern route, which is just, as the text tells us, you're, it looks like you don't know what you're doing. Your GPS is broken. Why are you going that route? And the Lord tells us, the reason I'm taking you this way is that I want Pharaoh to think you are hopelessly lost and you are disoriented. Pharaoh thinks he's trapped them. From the Lord's perspective, Pharaoh is gonna be trapped. 
The, the Lord knows exactly what he's doing here. And notice in verse 4, the text tells us, look at this, 14.4, it says in this text, and I will harden the heart of Pharaoh and I will be honored. Or the term means glorified. It is used always in the Old Testament, this term for divine retribution. It was used, for instance, with Sidon. I am against you, the Lord states, O Sidon, this is in Ezekiel 28, and I will gain glory within you. You are refusing, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, to give me honor. Your demise will give me honor. You've had so many opportunities to bend your knee. Remember Plague 7 with the hailstones? We saw this. It was the, it was the moment of which everything shifted Pharaoh admits that he's a sinner. He admits that God is righteous, and he admits that God can deliver the, the situation. But he refuses, ultimately, to give God honor. And so here we are. Now, the question is how, it says here, the Pharaoh, because of his army and the Egyptian, they will know that I am the Lord. How are they to know this when they're gonna die? <laughs> and scholars state, well, it's Egyptians as a whole. They represent all of the Egyptians I would argue, well, there's life beyond the grave. And they're going to know, sadly, in this life and beyond, that who they're dealing with is Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. And again, the text tells us, look at verse 4 again, it says that not only will I be honored, but they are going to know that I am the Lord. And one of those early plagues, Pharaoh says in chapter 5, verse 2, who is this Lord? Well, you cannot claim that ignorance anymore, Pharaoh. And you are now going to know full well who he is and all his wrath that will be unleashed. You know, there, there's no such thing as an innocent heathen. You say, well, you know, they just never heard the gospel. Well, no one can claim they don't know God, can they? Romans 1 Paul states in Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God, listen to what he says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, listen to what Paul states, his eternal power, divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So, the text tells us they are without excuse. I had a colleague who taught genetics. I said, how did you come to know the Lord? She said, well, it was during my doctoral program at Ohio State. As I was studying through these things through the microscope, I said, there is no way there isn't something greater than us on this globe. This just didn't happen. And the text tells us they are without excuse for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, for they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Paul goes on to state, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being. And we saw that with the plagues, didn't we? The worship of frogs. <laughs> the worship of the sun god, and Pharaoh even declaring himself as God, the son of Ra. And, 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 and here you have this battle that is about to occur between not the Egyptians, I would argue, and the Israelites, but this is who is truly God, the son of Ra or God Almighty? 
the battle. The, the plagues is, is kind of a precursor to this major event that we see here in Exodus 14. But don't you love Pharaoh's response in verse 5? He says, what in the world have we done? That's the question I asked when I had my first accident. <laughs> Notice I said first, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But you know, when you had that, you ram the, the bumper and you go, what have I done? Well, it's very simple. You just took the car and you didn't stop, right? And I go, Pharaoh, you, you have to ask that question? You just witnessed the, the death of your firstborn. You've, you've seen the devastation of your land. You recognize that the Lord was righteous and that you're a sinner. And you, were pers and you personally told the Israelites to leave. And you have to ask, what have you done? And notice what else Pharaoh says. This is, this is um, don't miss this. He goes, what in the world have we done? For we have released the people of Israel from what? Serving us. <laughs> What did the Israelites want to do? What did Moses request? Release us so we can serve God. And in Exodus 12, when Pharaoh finally says, yes, you can go, he says, go and serve the Lord whom you have spoken of. There's a battle going on. And Pharaoh saying, no, no, they're gonna serve us. And God's saying, no, they're gonna serve me. And this is, the, this is the tension. And the world will constantly seek. Doesn't the world constantly seek to take God's place? The allegiance that should be given to God, the world says, no, no, no. And that's what happens in Romans 1, verse 24. Because Paul goes on to state, the text I was reading earlier, he says, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. In other words, he hardens the hearts. You want the sin, you keep playing with the sin. God, there's going to be a point where God says, fine, have at it. It's the worst thing that can happen to you, right? To impurity, to the grading of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. If you would just know him, Pharaoh, this was your opportunity and you've missed it. And so what does Pharaoh do? He says in verse six, he, he garnishes his elite forces. And this is a quite... Let me just give you a little bit of a backdrop here because sometimes understanding the historical backdrop is very significant. The new kingdom dynasties at this time frame in Egypt's history were known for their military prowess. And, and in fact, one scholar states they were a thoroughly militarized society. They had certainly come to believe that an aggressive foreign policy was the best defense against any future humiliation at the hands of outsiders. That's why they had fortresses all along the Via Maris. I mean, they had a buffer zone around their empire, and they had an army that was elite beyond elite. In fact, if Amenhotep II is the pharaoh of the Exodus, there is a, an inscription at Giza, at the Sphinx of all places. You've seen the Sphinx, right? And that inscription says, now when he was still a youth, this is Amenhotep II, he loved his horses and rejoiced in them. And it goes on to talk about how he was very skilled in training them. And notice what the text says. He's garnished his chariots and his horsemen in, later in verse 9. And he's, he's pulled this elite squad. As for the chariots, uh, they were very well designed. One Egyptian 
scholar, Egyptologist, states the chariots were almost six foot wide, which allowed them to be stabilized, and they had two. One who operated the chariot, but the reins would be tied around so that he could use a bow and arrow. And then you had another warrior that rode with the charioteer that also had the means to slay. And no wonder the Israelites were scared spitless. These are the Sherman tanks that are being rolled out upon the Israelites. And what weapons do they have? Not much. Interesting, in 2016, an article was written in the Journal of the American Research Center out of Egypt. And this lady did a research on the reliefs of Pharaoh on his chariot. Listen to what she concludes, and I think she's correct. She said, it appears from both the temple reliefs and the stelas that the chariot served as a substitute or was the equivalent of the throne of Pharaoh. It was an icon of victory. Isn't that interesting? Pharaoh rides out on his chariot, a sign of victory, a sign of authority, and God says, come on, come on. I'm happy to meet you, Pharaoh. In fact, I've, I've laid this out so that I, God speaking, could be glorified. The battle, again, is not between Egyptians and the Israelites. It's whether the son, who is the true God, the son of Ra, the sun god, Pharaoh, or is it the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You know, if it wasn't so sad, it would be rather humorous in my warped mind. I don't know. I was sitting there last night thinking through this. Pharaoh, you couldn't withstand ten plagues. You, you recognized it came from the Lord. Why do you think going out with your elite forces, your fantastic skills with chariots, all the glitz and array of power is going to stop God at this point? Are you serious? But you know, sin does create false security, doesn't it? disillusioned thoughts of grandeur and irrational thinking. I love what Garrett says in his commentary, Pharaoh harnesses and God hardens. It's as if Pharaoh says, God's saying, Pharaoh, come on in, because I, as he states there in verse 4, I am going to be honored through your demise because you have failed. Pharaoh had the opportunity to exalt God early on and to repent. Remember Nineveh, they repented and we know what happened to them. Jonah wasn't real happy, but the Ninevites were. Go back to the text and let's look to see what happens. It says in verse 11, and they said to Moses, so the Israelites are terrified, my, they moved to this defiant attitude in verse eight to a terrified attitude. It says, they said to Moses, was it because you were, there were no graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the desert? <laughs> you gotta love that. I mean, what do you do when you tour Egypt today? You look at tombs, right? You look at all these, even the, the, the pyramids were tombs. Uh, so you, you hear this dripping with sarcasm. What in the world have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? First of all, Moses didn't do that. That was the Lord. Secondly, was this not what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we might serve Yahweh? Or that we might serve the Egyptians? Wow. 
What a sad statement. For it, they go, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. Love this verse. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord that he will provide for you today for the Egyptians. That you may see today that you will never ever see again. The Lord will fight for you and you can be still. The text says in verse 10 that they feared greatly. That is the same phrase that is used of Jacob when he's about to appear before. You remember when he's waiting to meet his brother Esau and he's scared spitless? It's also used of Psalm 138 when it says, I praise you, O Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's a healthy fear directed towards God. But as we see here, they're terrified and they've lost sight. Well, they see the sight of the elite army that's encroaching upon them. I mean, you can, you can hear the horse's hooves coming down, and behind you is the water lapping from the Red Sea, and you're going, uh, and, and consequently, as they look to all this and thinking, how am I going to take elderly, even if I could get across the sea, I've got elderly children, or elderly, and I've got children to take across this, this body of water. What are we to do? And consequently, their circumstances weaken their theology. The Israelites had much to learn about God. It's not only Pharaoh who needs to know God, so do the Israelites. It's been stated, I fear God and therefore I have no one else to fear. We need to be careful, don't we, with past circumstances or perhaps our present predicament. It's so easy to allow the events of life to color our theology, question the Lord and his character and doubt the things of God, right? Careful, just because you had bad pizza last night, that, doesn't, that could tilt your theology. It, it needs to be rooted here because when the storms of life come, it is so easy to begin to question, wait a minute, God, are, are you truly faithful? I mean, think about what the Israelites are accusing God of. You're not faithful. You, you don't care. You aren't sovereign. I mean, the list goes on. And in verses 11 and 12, when they come after Moses here, it, it's a double negative here. It says, and they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves? It, it's, it, the emphasis is seen. And again, you, you just survived 10 plagues. You've seen God's powerful hand, and yet Fear, anger, and despair are eclipsing their proper view of God, a God who promised to bring them to the land he swore to the fathers. The ancient historian Josephus, who lived in the first century and recounting the scene, said not only did they rebuke, the Israelites rebuke Moses, they rebuked God, and they sought to stone Moses. This is not a good predicament for Moses. And again, they sought to serve God. It wasn't a loss of nerve, I would argue. It was a loss of faith. And lest we wag our tongues, our heads at, at the Israelites and say, oh, that was just awful. Careful, we've been rescued by the Lord, and yet we can go right back to our old ways of coping, can't we? Anger, addiction, depression, distraction. Oh, we might have hated it, but it was familiar, that old way of life. It's, it's where we found at least some identity. There was consistency and perhaps, strangely enough, acceptance. And that's what the Israelites are saying. 
we want to go back to slavery. Have you forgotten what God has done? And the, the real irony in all of this is all we need to do is go back to verses three and four of this chapter. There is no real danger. God is in charge. He has you right where he wants them. It's a good lesson for the Israelites. It's a good lesson for us. We don't bring anything to this equation. There's nothing the Israelites needed to do. Just sit back and let God move. That's why I love what Moses says. Just stand there. Don't do anything. Just stand. Don't be afraid, Moses says. It's the same words that God has given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Hagar. Don't be afraid. Just stand. Ephesians 6, Paul in his, he lays out the armor of God and he says to believers, therefore take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And after you've done everything, what does Paul say? Stand firm. It's hard, isn't it? Just to stand and be still and let God move. Our, our temptation is, is to run or to cry out in fear or worse yet, try to fix it ourselves. And the Lord says, no, just stand. George Duffield in that old hymn, stand up, stand up for Jesus. I love the third verse. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. Ye dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer, where duty calls or danger be never wanting there. You Israelites, God has you right where he wants you. Why? Because he's going to show you a few things in this process. In fact, look at verses 15. Let's look at the end of this section. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out? We saw this. Well, no, this is now to rebuke of Moses. But as for you, lift up your rod, extend your hand towards the sea and divide it so that the Israelites may go in the midst of the sea on dry ground. That phrase is repeated four times here in the next several verses. But I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Here it is again. They will pursue. And notice what he says in verse 18. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord who and I have gained my honor. There it is again, glory, because of Pharaoh, because of his chariots, because of his horsemen. The angel of God who was going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them. God is maneuvering. He, he puts this deep darkness between the Israelites and the Egyptians to protect the Israelites, allowing the Israelites then to cross the Red Sea. And Moses stretched out his hand towards the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go apart by a strong east wind all night, and he made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The text tells us in verse 23, and the Egyptians chased after them. They went into the midst of the sea. All the horses of Pharaoh, his entire army goes after the Israelites. There's scholars who try to dismiss this and discredit it. And I love, someone said, my, isn't God great? He drowned all of them in six inches of water, 
right? Uh, no, there's more to this than that, right? And in the morning, watch the Lord work, looked down on the host of Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and through the, and threw the Egyptians into a panic. He jammed the wheels of their chariots. You could render this, they literally broke off the axles in the mud. And notice what the Egyptians said. They finally get it. Let's flee from the presence of Israel for the Lord fights for them against Egypt. You would have thought you got that through the 10 plagues, but God has hardened their hearts at this point. And the Lord said to Moses, extend your hand towards the sea so the waters may flow back on the Egyptians, on their chariots, on the horsemen. Moses extended towards the sea. Now the Egyptians were fleeing before it, but the Lord overthrew. Literally, it's, it's to shake off like d dirt on a garment. Shook off the, the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Don't miss this. This is very significant. The waters returned, covered the chariots, pursued those. It says not one of them survived, but the Israelites walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. The waters were like a wall to them. So the Lord saved Israel on that day. Watch what the text says. And on that day from the hand of Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore of the sea. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord had exercised over the Egyptians, they feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. It's a long text there, but I want you to see some things that are happening. First of all, you have to ask, wait a minute, why isn't the Lord rebuking the Israelites? Did you notice who the Lord rebukes? It's Moses. Poor Moses. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to have his job? No one is happy, right? But when you think about it, Moses should be rebuked of all the people that should be rebuked. He's the one who could personally testify to encountering God. He's the one who saw God's provisions in his life. He had personal instructions that were given to him from the Lord. He had a front row seat to the plagues. Many of them didn't affect the Israelites. Moses was provided amazing promises by the Lord himself, and Moses was called to lead. And so, God takes Moses and he spanks him and says, listen, this is not what I intended here. There is no scientific explanation, is there, for the parting of the Red Sea. One scholar writes, Walt Kaiser, there is no way to water down, I love that, the text, to fit natural explanations. The report clearly shows a miraculous work of God making a path through the sea, a path that had to be as wide as half a mile in order for that many people and their animals to cross between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's God. I have you right where I want you, God said. Recognizing the parting of the Red Sea and that it was God's hand, Isaiah 51 says, did you, God, not dry up the sea, the waters of the great deep? Did you not make a path through the depths of the sea so that you were delivered from the bondage could cross over? The awe and majesty of God should not be missed in Exodus 14. God did not need to save Israel, but he did. He didn't need to spare every Israelite, but he did. He didn't need to go before Israel, but he did. He didn't need to give a word of assurance to Israel, but he did. And he didn't need to obliterate their enemy, but he did. That's God in all his majesty. Psalm 77 mentions this account of the 
parting of the Red Sea and then it coming and crashing and killing the Egyptians. And Psalm 77 says God caused a rainstorm, lightning, thunder, and an earthquake that brought the Egyptians to their knees and then ultimately wiping them out. God promised that the Egyptians would know him. Sadly, it's at their demise that they will recognize who he is. Notice what the text tells us, it's morning when this occurs. The Egyptians believed that the sun god, Ra, rose in the east in the morning. When Moses appeared before Pharaoh in his first request to let the Israelites go, Pharaoh is down by the river in the morning. He's not bathing. He's worshiping the sun god. That word is very key. God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is God, not Pharaoh. And he is dead in the morning. The very time frame when he is to be worshiped, and he worships Ra. Isn't that great? It's these little things as you see, you unpack the text. The price of Pharaoh's hardened heart was costly. It cost him his firstborn son, his workforce, his elite army, and his own life. Sin, careful, it is not to be trifled with. What you sow, the text tells us, you will reap. Young people, be very careful. God will not be mocked. And we look at Exodus 14 and we see that very thing. While every Israelite is spared, not one Egyptian survives. And you see the contrast, don't you, at the end of this scene in, in Exodus 14, in, in just these few verses. First, they fear the Egyptians, then they fear the Lord. The Israelites wanted to go back and serve the Egyptians, now they're willing to serve the Lord. They distrusted and disbelieved God, now they have faith in God. They hated Moses, and now they trust and praise Moses, the text tells us. This contrast. We say, well, Havidus, what do I do with that? I mean, that, that's a great event. It's, it's awesome to see. What does that mean for me living in 2021 over here in Westfield? There are three principles there in your notes. The first of these, as believers, we need to rejoice in our miraculous salvation. Our salvation was obtained through an all-powerful, loving, and sovereign God who rescued us from the enemy. You know, I mentioned this earlier, 1 Corinthians 10 states that the Israelites were baptized into Moses as they were led through the sea of death. Isn't that an interesting way to depict that? And then Paul states that prefigures our baptism in Christ's death and being delivered from the bondage to sin in 1 Corinthians 10. Our, in other words, our new Moses, Jesus, has offered freedom from enslavement to sin and the prospect of death. The offer is made. Turn to Jesus. And sadly, there are so many who try to figure out how they're going to get through the impossible. And the Lord says, confess your sin. Right? Turn to Him. Call upon Him while you can. Our salvation is solely dependent on the Lord. Can you imagine if one of the Israelites said, after they'd crossed the Red Sea and saw all that had transpired, said, you know what? I think I want to go back to Egypt. I'm going to get a boat, go back across the Red Sea, see you all later. Uh, I'm going back to uh, slavery. We'd all say, well, that's absolutely insane. That's crazy. No one would ever do that. 
But after all that Christ has done for us, he's rescued us from sin. He came and he died on a cross. When one, why would you not accept the gift that has been so graciously offered? It's as crazy as saying, I'm gonna get a boat and try to go back across the Red Sea. If you have accepted Christ as your savior, don't wallow back in the sin. Look to the Lord who gloriously has saved you because you have experienced something far greater than a Red Sea. And God has worked in your life to bring you to a point just as he did with the Israelites. Second, in your notes there, even when circumstances fail to make sense, God is always in control. Isaiah 51, was it not you who dried up the sea? the waters of the great deep who made it a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Why? Why does God allow the Red Seas? Well, let me give you three. Number one, when faced with the impossible, we meet the one with whom all things are possible. Don't we? Corey Timboom. Many of you know who she is. She hid Jews during World War II. She was caught in a concentration camp. Uh, lost many of her family members because they had protected many Jews. I love this statement from her. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Hmm. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. There was nothing those Israelites were gonna do there as they faced the Red Sea and an elite world power army breathing fire down their necks. They're done. I think they were hoping that perhaps Pharaoh would spare their lives and allow them to go back into slavery. When faced with the impossible, we have an opportunity to watch the one who can perform the impossible. Secondly, we not only witness the one who accomplishes the impossible, but we grow in our knowledge of him. You see that progression, don't you, with the Israelites? And in recognition, ah, you are the God. Notice how that text ends in chapter 14. Look at this. It says, when Israel saw the great power of the Lord that it exercised over the Egyptians, they feared the Lord. It's about time. And next week, we're gonna look at the song that they break out singing in Exodus 15. It is glorious. It's rich with theology. And we'll look at that next week. And then third, this growth in our knowledge of him comforts us as we recognize that we are safe and secure. I mean, Israelites should have been ready to do whatever the Lord asked of them after all that he had done for them and what they had seen at the Red Sea. No wonder the Old Testament time and time again goes back to the the parting of the Red Sea. This is our God. Don't forget it. Here's what he's done. Don't, don't, Don't lose sight of it. Even in the impossible moments, we are safe and secure. God is in charge. (laughs) And so Isaiah 51 is correct. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? (laughs) And third, in your notes, those who resist and reject God will ultimately abandon wisdom and morality. Sin can so quickly form cataracts over our hearts, can't it? In the glorious moment for the Israelites, there's a really sad commentary over here with those poor Egyptians. You saw God's hand. You recognized his righteousness. Why didn't you bend your knee? 
Riken in his commentary on Exodus says, why did God part the waters of the Red Sea? The answer is very simple. An answer that explains, the in fact, the whole book of Exodus. Indeed, it's the answer that explains why God does everything that he has ever done in doing right now or will ever do. The answer is the glory of God. <laughs> he did it all for his own glory. God stated it to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. And this cosmic battle that's been going on, God is victorious. He took down the son of Ra. He took down the Egyptian gods. And he said, I am in charge. And in his power, in his majesty, it's peppered with grace and love that he showered upon those Israelites. They certainly didn't deserve it. They weren't turning to the Lord. And yet God in his grace provided do not reject the one who has clearly revealed his glory. Correct? The text tells us, I am going to show you my glory through what's going to happen at the Red Sea. <laughs> Father, we just thank you for your text. It's a powerful scene. It's, it's a familiar text. And at times we can, the familiarity kind of clouds us seeing exactly what you're doing. May we not miss that you are the sovereign God who has claim and authority over all things. May we bend our knee, but also we have the glorious opportunity to simply trust you in the midst of life's impossible moments. You've promised that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Those who know your son as their personal savior are his. Oh Lord, there are some perhaps this morning who do not know you. Like Pharaoh, they might admit there is a God. They might recognize that they've done things that are wrong, but there's never been a point where they said, no, I need to confess my sin before a holy God, bend my knee and recognize that Christ died and rose from the grave. Lord, I pray that they would do that this morning. May they turn their life to you and understand what an incredible opportunity it is to be called your people, how you provide, how you care, and how you part Red Seas. It's in your son's name we pray.